Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas and social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. This week, I'd like to invite you into a conversation with someone I admire very much and someone who has taught me a lot this year. Carolyn Lowry is a racial equity professional with a focus on cultural competence, facilitation, and relationship building. Carolyn and I have crossed paths many times over the years, but it was this year that I really got to learn from her up close. Carolyn has an incredible gift for teaching. She has the ability to make people feel at ease, even when the topic is a complicated one. And even if you've just met her, it's easy to feel like you've known her for years. Carolyn and I sat down earlier this year for a conversation on race in the workplace as part of a virtual community conversation series. So bear with me if my audio is not the best for this one. Our goal was to model a conversation on race and racism, to show that while conversations may be hard, they don't have to be intimidating. And if you've been listening to this podcast or following our work, you know that our team has been engaging in conversations like this one for a few years now in the spirit of continuous learning and then thoughtfully applying those learnings to build and maintain an actively anti-racist workplace. I've made my fair share of mistakes in the past and I will own that. I am certain that I will make more in the future. To me, it's all part learning and growing together toward a more just and equitable future. Carol and I start this conversation with three questions inspired by my friends over at Leadership Montgomery. I ask Carolyn, why did you show up for this conversation? Why does this moment in history feel different? And what will you do about it? I wanted to have this conversation because we're at a very critical time in our history and in our country. Um, there are several contexts that have been contributing to um, the, the stress and the tension that is caused by race and racism, not race, excuse me, by racism. And so um, I wanted to have this conversation with you um, and with everyone who is here, because I know you've been engaged in these conversations um, in your office. Um, I think that there are many people who are wanting to engage in this conversation and this process of changing the world um, and not understanding quite how, because this is very new. Um, you know, it's a new thing. They're not, there aren't really models to um, pull from. And um, really this format, because our context, we're, we're in a context where most of us are still quarantined at home. And if we're not, then we feel safer um, not being in big groups of people. So I, I want to ask you the same question, though. I'm, I'm curious about your response. Yeah, um, I did too. It's not an easy one. I think it, it takes time um, to think about that. But what my employees would say, hopefully, and my colleagues would say, is that I do a lot to hold myself accountable. Uh, and on this issue, I work incredibly hard to hold myself accountable. But I also want other people to hold me accountable. I, I need you all to hold me accountable as a, as a business leader and as a colleague and hopefully as a friend and a family member too. Um, so I think it's easy to say that you're committed to being anti-racist and it's another thing to do it and to get into the vulnerable and uncomfortable conversations that require it. And so to me, that's what today's about. Certainly hear you on that. It is, it is, it can get difficult. It can get very difficult and sticky. This moment, I mean, you just started to touch on that, but this is a very unique moment that we're in 2020 as a year and all kinds of, all kinds of things. It's all the things, right? It's all at once. But why does this moment feel different to you? I, um, I should start by saying I have been quite cynical um, about politics and politics and race um, and our social structures and race. However, I think this is different and it feels different for me because um, of a couple of things. One, the undercurrent of COVID impacting communities of color, particularly indigenous, black and Latino communities is critical. Um, and it's a very different context that we've had in about a hundred years or so. Add on top of that, the access to information 
um, and the way media uses um, information given. Even 20 years ago, even when I was growing up, uh, news and information wasn't so accessible. It wasn't in my hands. Um, you had to search it out. And I think part of that um, has changed how we ingest and or analyze information um, and what is happening around us. So the, the, the combination and intersections of this pandemic and its impacts, um, how we use social media, um, I think has certainly changed. I think how media um, reports on news is very different as well. Um, there used to be a very objective um, and high integrity level with journalism that I I don't see as clearly now that I than I used to. I think it's very subjective and not always as um, informed, analytical, or complete as news has been um, in the past. So, but to that point, though, there are many things that feel the same to me. And so, I was not born in sixty eight, nineteen sixty eight, but I do. Um, I have read a lot about it. I have studied lots of um, movements and um, periods of time in history. The racism that we're that we're seeing that is available to see all the time now isn't different. The only difference is that people are more aware of it, and I, I would say mostly white people are more aware of it because it's not something that has been in white people's faces often. But communities of color certainly have experienced um, this type of terrorism from the state uh, related to race for centuries. So does this time feel different to you? It does. And you've touched on a few things that I've been thinking about too. Um, one, in terms of the, the COVID moment that we are in, that it seems to have this, this moment of lockdown in some ways has taken away many of the distractions that allowed so many people to ignore inequality before. And so here it is. You're exactly right, right in front of us, Absolutely. everywhere we turn. And so it's why haven't we done something in, in a sense of urgency that we all feel now? And so in, in some ways, maybe it is that intersection moment that's, that's helping in some ways. I fully hear you and agree with you on the news cycle and the media. And we actually work quite a bit in support of local news and community-based news and nonprofit news. And I will yes. say that that is a beacon for a healthy democracy. And we need more of that um, because you're exactly right. So much of the the big corporate media is um, adding fuel to the fire right now. It's certainly not doing much to educate and um, and challenge. Absolutely uh, not. So many Absolutely of the issues not. that we're facing. Mm -hmm. There's this amplified moment of uh, reckoning about racial justice right now, right? One that is touching the NFL, one is that that is touching corporate giants. And so the the question is, or maybe the the, the hope is, that this moment isn't a moment that just slips away, right? That this is momentum that sticks for good and that people are taking this moment to, to do the, the hard work and the inner work that I yes. know a lot of today's conversation is going to focus on yes. that is required for this not just to be a moment, right? It's, it's easy to take down a statue. It's easy to change the name of a street. But what's behind that, right? Absolutely. And even though um, it is easy to do these things, they had not been done. And there had been so much op opposition um, until this point to do so. Um, so I think being having to be at home in this quarantine has really um, forced people, as you said, to pay attention to this. But I do think there's an app, there's an aspect of um, fear that is happening in some of our um, in our context that is spurring people to want to act more or to listen more or to pay attention more. When you see mm -hmm. people in mass you know, rebelling against a certain thing. That's a scary moment for governments in our government's history. That has been a very scary moment. And there has been several retaliations when um, things like that in our history have happened. So I, I, um, I think it's the mass <laughs> that has the critical mass um, of people protesting, rioting, um, um, following policy, communicating with their politicians. I'm talking about this in the workplaces. Um, having these conversations in their churches, the confluence of everything is really uh, shaking up something different. It's loosening up, I think, some of the resistance. And I, I don't think it's all uh, intrinsically uh, for good reasons. I think there are some political and social reasons why this change is happening. Nevertheless, progress is progress. Well, there's there's something for me that I, I keep hearing in a lot of, of your words as I've been listening to you over these, these last few weeks. And it's about 
um, mindset shift that yes. in, in the mass, right, in the masses of people coming together and the fact that we are seeing so many uh, young and white protesters in, th- in this set of protesters, that there are mind shifts that are starting to happen. And I think back to our last community conversation, we spent some time talking about systems and what systems are, and that at the end of the day, yes. systems are people. And so if we want to see systems change, we need to see people change. Absolutely. And so is this a moment that these mindsets potentially are in fact starting to change and that the effect of mindset change could, in fact, be systems change. Yes, I, I hope that I really hope that happens. I think um, there's a lot of there are a lot of steps that will happen in between um, right now and for that change to happen that need to be uh, really delineated and aligned um, throughout different movements to be able to see that change happen at a level at, at our systems level. So I wonder if you can talk a bit. I, I gave a very brief overview about you and certainly undersold the amazing background that you have and bring to this work. Thank but you. you have done a lot with us in recent weeks um, and over the course of your career about that inner work, that deep inner work that has to happen at the individual level for then a system to change. And I wonder yes. if you can maybe just give a little background. We'll talk more about this over the hour, but a bit of background on what that means to you. It can mean a lot of different things. Um, I'm going to use the, the context that we're in right now. Um, and so in a work for me uh, during this past month, month and a half has looked like making sure I'm not overly engaged in traumatic images. Um, I don't know how many times I have seen uh, the police officer on George Floyd's neck. And I purposely had not wanted to see that. It is, it's horrible. Um, so for me, and I think for some of my friends of color, particularly black, other Black women, it has meant being very, very aware of um, how this these traumatic images have shown up in our bodies and in our um, emotional and spiritual well-being. I, I believe that it has also really had people in mass in general in this country and all over the world feel and see the grief of every single time somebody is killed by, by state, by the state, uh, what that does, it is, it is a horrible feeling. Um, and so to have had this history of understanding this so intrinsically uh, for many black people um, for generations, um, this this trauma and this pain and this uh, fear is uh, something that never goes away. So monitoring those things have been very important for some of my friends. I think it's important to really look at bias. Every single one of us has bias. Um, We cannot stop bias. It is impossible to do. But what we can do is to notice when we have them and to start to think about why, address those questions. You know, I um, will walk down the street and uh, say something in my head that does not sound politically correct. And I'll have to remember when I get home or whenever I get to a place to write down, what was that about? Really dissect that. And when I do that, I, I realize that um, the the bias I had was not based in anything um, true. It was not based in anything real. It was based on something very subjective. So I think understanding where bias comes from um, individually uh, is very important. I think uh, understanding concepts such as empathy and respect and dignity and compassion are critical. Um, understanding how these things show up in um, one's life and how one engages in these things is a part of this conversation. And it's a part of this conversation for me because if there, there, if you have these things, if you have respect for all humans, if you have dignity, if you want to have dignity, if you want to show compassion or empathy, there is no racism. It, it, they cancel each other out. So understanding how these abstract concepts um, interact with one is critical, I believe, as well. Another thing that um, is harder to do is to be self-critical. And so understanding and thinking back when um, somebody might have been triggered by a statement or a comment is important. And before we have emotional responses, but oftentimes when, um, um, and we talked about this in the training, when a microaggression happens and a response is given, um, 
the person who pointed out the microaggression is targeted as uh, and is condemned, or the, you know, the 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 weight of that goes back to the person who felt the microaggression. And there's a lot of defensiveness. And so thinking back about when people have been defensive um, and it may have been something you did or didn't understand at the time or did or didn't believe at the time, but it happened. And so it's something to acknowledge and to address. These are, um, I think, some easy first steps, but there, there's so many more. <laughs> any, any inner work um, requires a lot of discipline, a lot of time to be reflective and a lot of time, um, a lot of stillness. Now, I know the context of this conversation is really centered around race in the workplace, yes. but obviously there is um, there is no disconnecting um, experiences of race in and outside of the workplace, right? We need to practice anti-racism every day, everywhere we are. And Absolutely. so one of the, the things, um, you you spurred me to action in many ways over, over the course of uh, or after that training, but one of the things I started to do is my husband and I, you, you just use that word critical. My husband and I every night have critical conversations mm. with our kids where we bring issues of racism to the dinner table. And yes. we talk about owning our conversations, owning our words, understanding the privilege that we have as yes. a white family. Um, and, and again, I, I, um, I realize that that is not easy or natural, and it is jarring for my kids to start those conversations, but I already see how important that process is becoming to the point where my 10-year-old daughter came up to me today, and she was looking around. On, I, I had asked her to find a summer reading list and things that she wanted to focus in on, and the book on the top of her list was This Book is Anti-Racist, which is a great book for kids. And how great that was, that you know, it's, it's now normalizing. It's becoming more normalized for her to start her life as a a young person with the awareness to be a racially conscious kid um, in a way that it took me, me way too long in life to be racially conscious. And, you know, it's, it was different. Um, it was different growing up for me as well. These were not conversations that were held in public often at all, and certainly mm-hmm. not in a mixed company. And in, in mixed company, I mean, between uh, Black and white people. So these conversations happened, um, at least in my family as a young child, because we have to be protected and we had to be safe. Um, so race has always been part of my understanding of who I am. Um, I, however, understanding also that it is a new conversation for people um, to have, it is encouraging to see that it is becoming a norm and that people are starting to want to engage in them and not shy away from the uh, immediate res- emotional response of what this thing feels like when talking about it. So I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm happy that I was able to um, influence you in any way and that these conversations are great conversations and so important to have. And as you see, it's already changed the trajectory of your children's thinking. Hi, I'm Bridget Pooley, Chief Operating Officer at Mission Partners. Has 2020 thrown your strategic communications plans out the window? Do you need to get your team back on track for the start of a new year? We can help. At Mission Partners, we believe the best solutions require a clear vision of the end results. Through our interactive, immersive, and virtual visioneering sessions, we will guide you and your team to alignment around shared values and a shared vision, providing new perspective to your stickiest problems and mapping key actions to get you there. Visit mission.partners backslash let's go for more information on our signature virtual visioneering sessions. So I want to uh, raise what we've been working on and, and then get back to yes. workplace, some conversations around the workplace. So for the better part of the year, our company, Mission Partners, has been working on our race equity action plan. And that yes. certainly required a lot of inner work, hard conversations, looking at every policy and procedure that we have and reimagining how that policy and procedure could work in a more equitable way. Right. And so we're on we're on a solid path. I will say we have a long way to go still. And and I expect that it will be a lifelong process, right? Yes. To, to fully become where we want to be. Um, but what I appreciated about that process is that it started with a lot of foundational work. And it started with the development of some grounding commitments. We we believed we needed to commit as a team and as a workplace to be able to meaningfully advance 
an mm-hmm. anti-racist framework. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to pause and have you reflect on that as, as I know you do regularly in your training on some of those commitments that need to be in place for a company or an organization of any kind, really, to be able to move anti-racist work forward. I think the number one thing is the willingness. Um, I, I think it is critical. Critical is a word I use often these past few weeks. Um, but I think it is critical to understand that it is a process. It is not something that it is not a standard operating procedure. It is not a, a task that can be checked off and then accomplish um, the goal. It is a process. It is a process of listening, um, of being aware of the emotionality of it and how that impacts um, an individual. Um, flexibility is critical. Um, as you said, this is a process that is lifelong and it's lifelong because our understanding of race has changed in this country. Um, and as that has happened, uh, certain social norms change as well. Um, and so there's always a need to continually understand the context whatever context um, and the intersections of race, um, always in a workplace. Being human, what as a human does somebody need to do whatever the work is um, that needs to be done? And does it have to be done in such a stringent way that there is no flexibility around that? Um, I think we've seen in the past, uh, since March, I, I forgot what day it is. I never know the days. My sense of time is so <laughs> off since this quarantine. <laughs> so since March, we've understood and seen that there absolutely are multiple ways to get work done. Multiple ways that are easier for some people, um, given their social constructs, given their lives. Um, so really uh, being able to expand thinking about how a thing has to be done is important too. So innovation and creativity. There is a hard part, going back to the emotional part, um, of managing that when conversations happen. And so before having these conversations, understanding that there will probably be some guilt, some shame, some anger, some rage, um, some denial um, that will show up in the conversation is important to understand so you can prepare to manage it and understand and think about how you would want to respond, how one would want to respond when met with these emotions. What I've seen happen several times is once we get to a point where someone starts to cry or someone's voice is too loud, the conversation devolves, um, dissolves, and is tabled. I'm curious about you. What was, what was the first um, step for you and mission partners to engage in these conversations? And how has that changed? Well, <laughs> I'm it sure it's evolved. A lot. It has. It has. So when we first opened the doors at Mission Partners, the very first thing we did was to build an equity advisory board. And I wanted to have a team of individuals that would, as I mentioned, hold me accountable, right? We're a private business. We don't need to have a board, but I wanted that board to hold me and the team accountable. And I thought that was a great idea. Mm -hmm. And I met with that board once every quarter. I would report out on what we were doing. Mm -hmm. I would seek advice from them. And what I realized very, very quickly is I, was, I wasn't I was doing deeply enough the work in any way, right? I had to do deeply the internal work to be able to then externally yes. shout out to the world that I had an equity advisory board, right? It was empty. Right. It was completely empty. Um, and I appreciate that I had one of the members after three or four meetings basically acknowledge that. Yes. And she said, I want you to go do more work and know that we will always be here for you, but you don't need us in this capacity, at least not yet. Um, and so that was powerful and good <laughs> that someone said that to me and that yes. I paused and rethought that. And so we then took the next year and I very specifically dug in even more deeply to understand historically how race was showing up and racism was showing up in the work, not necessarily in the work that we were doing every day, but inherently embedded inside a lot of the policies that exactly. I did just year over year over year, you know, was, was doing certain things and was offering certain kind of benefits. And, um, then thinking about it, it's, it's like, um, you know, once that, once you have that aha moment, you can't ever see it the same way again. You never um, can unsee it. Never. Right. Right. So, so much has changed in terms of how we think about 
the benefit structure, how we ensure that everyone yes. has access to wealth building opportunities through our yes. 401k and through our promotions and through our um, every right, everything. And, and like I said, there's still more to do. But what I found so helpful in that early stage was that reinforcement of this is not about writing a statement, right? This is not about writing a blog. This is not about saying that you do this work, just do the work. And then we'll, you know, talk about it down the road. That's exactly it. You know, I get the question a lot. So what do I do? It, do the work. Um, And so part of, right. And just start, start where you are. Um, I think with like with any challenge or um, difficult or um, existential uh, concept, you have to start somewhere. I think it is, um, I think it's easy to start where one feels most comfortable. Um, I also want to point out as a black woman, I have had to do lots of work around race and racism as well. So this is not a one-sided thing for just white people. This is for everyone. Every single one of us who's lived in this country has had an experience with race at the center of it, knowingly or not. Um, the, 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 that inner work though, it's hard. And I think even understanding that doing the work will bring up um, so many triggers and, um, you know, fears and um, emotions that have been, that have been uh, hidden for so long and understanding the impact of that is also a part of understanding race work. It is very tiring. It is very, mm-hmm. very tiring when you think about biologically what happens to your body when you have to unlearn a thing to relearn something else? That is a lot of energy that um, our body expends to do that. And so it's tiring as well. It's exhausting. Right, right. The other word that um, I think about a lot is trust. That yes. I hope that my team trusts me, that I'm moving in the right direction, and that I seek guidance and counsel constantly. But we, it needs to be both ways, right? I, yes. we, we have to have a constant um, trust between us. And we um, read as a management team, we read Brene Brown's Dare to Lead and yes. really practice regularly rumbling with vulnerability. And we'll say to one another, we need to, we need to pause and rumble, right? We need to work through this. And we trust one another enough to be able to do that. And I understand and recognize how special that is in workplace and that that's not a norm in a lot of workplaces it's it's not it's not and you know i um i have been in several work contexts where these conversations have started um in similar ways talking about vulnerability which is Brene brown um if you're not familiar with her you should check her out um you can find information about her on youtube she has a couple of ted talks um but she talks about vulnerability and shame often um and my challenge was starting the conversation um, there for me at the time uh, a couple of years ago was that I felt vulnerable enough already. I felt I did not need to do more work to put myself in more harm's way when I'm experiencing harm um, or feeling an effect of racism. Um, and so it was uh, talking about vulnerability is tricky as well because there are nuances. There are nuances in every single one of these um, concepts. You know, how people experience vulnerability and how they want to express it will look different based on an individual. And I would think there are also some um, racial context, cultural context that impacts how vulnerability shows up as well. Um, trust is hope. Is, is a, it, it's a process as well. No one, mm-hmm. well, maybe. I shouldn't say no one. Um, for me, the process of trust is, you know, assuming a certain level of um, of expectation that somebody who I engage in a relationship with will not cause me harm intentionally. And then it builds from there or it diminishes from there. And so mm-hmm. um, I've, you know, I, again, have had to think about what does trust look like for me and how do I engage in it? So these are very, very um, good places to start. It's important, though, to understand that the perception and the experiences with, with vulnerability and shame and in any other um, place you want to start will look different. It's nuanced. Right. right. Bronwyn, you've got an interesting question here that I will, I will read to you, Carolyn. You. Is this technique you are both demonstrating be what you would suggest as a start, or is there some preparation needed up front? I think the preparation of inner work is always the thing to start with. Um, and I repeat that 
all the time. I should probably get a tattoo on my face that says, do the inner work. Um, so before engaging in any conversation that is difficult with anybody in a relationship, I would prep similarly. Um, if you are married, for an example, and you want to have a tough conversation about money, um, probably realize it's not a good idea to do it in the midst of a crisis um, around money. Um, uh, it is probably um, helpful to understand somebody that the partner's ex ex experience and expectation um, around money before making assumptions. So there is preparation, I think. But I, I think, again, that's inner work. And I think, you know, I think that's something that has not been intentionally um, focused on as a skill that is um, helpful in our society lately, you know, to, to be um, introspective or to be uh, self-critical or self-awareness. So absolutely, there's some unfront work. But I think it really depends on the relationship you have with the person or the people involved as well. I hope that's helpful. Yeah. Did that did that help? The did that answer the question? Thanks. We will unmute you. I think here. Yeah, she said yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. So um, there are a few that came in um, just to me a little while ago, and there's one that actually ties back to the point we were going to move into next, which is we've spent a little time talking about what must happen first before you go out in there and, and make the statement. Certainly, there has been a lot of public statements made, yes. likely probably not without the inner work done. And here we are on the eve of Juneteenth and a enormous wave of companies have signaled it as a company holiday. And while yes, that's an important step, there's a lot behind, you know, what is what necessarily is behind that. But I am curious to just pause um and and get your take on that. What's what's your take on how companies and employers are acknowledging tomorrow? I think this is a very good conversation for mission partners as a communications, um, a communications firm. I think a lot of it is PR. Um, and so again, these are not, Juneteenth is not a new holiday. It's been around since 1865. Um, it's been celebrated, um, consistently in certain states, particularly in Texas and Arkansas, um, Oklahoma states closer to there. Um, and then more recently, um, the more recent decades, um, it has spread to, uh, celebrating it in other parts of the country. Um, if people are not aware of what Juneteenth is, um, it is uh, the time after the the um, slavery was abolished. Two years later, um, on June 19th in 1865, news that slavery had ended reached Texas. So two years after that had um, been law is when Texas uh, slaves from Texas, those who had been enslaved in Texas, were free at that point, hence the celebration. Um, but, you know, these are, this is how I feel our government works. This is why I'm cynical. <laughs> so um, the statements to me, I'm happy. Again, progress is progress. I'm happy that people are acknowledging and understanding that this is a celebration. This is a celebratory time. Um, and I hope people will understand um, the history of it as well. And there's certain traditions uh, that are tied to it that I think are fun because I like food. Um, and a lot of these, these conversations, these traditions revolve around food um, and the color red and red foods. Um, but it's frustrating. It can be frustrating when... Um, when a company or a, you know an organization uh, says they support a thing like Black Lives or like Juneteenth on paper, but that is not what is happening um, behaviorally um, or in, in between interactions and so or through policies. So I think uh, it's the first step. And again, just like um, well, as I was mentioning before, this is this is step one. This is just maybe like step 0 0.5 <laughs> in addressing um, racism in our country. It, and so I'm excited to see how um, how companies are addressing this. I'm also curious to see how they will maintain these, um, these or honor these celebrations or um, other things that are new information to people um, in the future once the cameras are off. We were talking a bit before this about some comments that have come in over the course of the last couple of weeks from friends, clients, colleagues of individuals who are inside an organization and realize that they 
want to be a change maker when it comes to issues of racial justice and social justice and economic justice, justice in general. And they realize that the leadership of the organization isn't there yet. Um, hopefully will, will make their way there, but it's not there yet. And so there is a struggle of what can I do? How do I do it? And so I've been doing a little bit of reading and thinking about that. And I wanted to, um, call up something that I had read about from the management center. And I am regularly commenting and, and referring to them as a group that I really appreciate and respect a lot. Um, but they came out with a short list that I hope can serve as just a conversation starter for us. Um, and they shared five points that really focus on how to begin the work, as, as you were right. starting to say, right? Some ways to begin to acknowledge and learn from past harms and inequities, to root out existing inequities inside the organization, to make specific, concrete, and outcome-driven plans to address inequities, to make challenging anti-Blackness part of everyone's job description, starting with the leadership, and not to make promises you can't keep. Mm -hmm. So as we think about that and go back to that initial question that we've heard a few times, how do I serve as a change maker when I don't have the support of leadership? I'm curious how you've interacted with that question over time. And maybe there's a conversation or discussion we can get in around that point. I think this is a complex question. This to me may be one of the more complex questions out of the ones that you've asked. And it's complex because um, there's a dynamic of livelihood and power that is tied to these conversations. And so um, it is not always safe for, uh, I will say as a black woman, especially as a black woman to have these conversations or to bring them up without fear of consequence. And I have experienced the consequence. I have, um, seen others experience these consequences. So it, it is, I think it depends on how an organization or a company addresses issues of power. I think it's, it's always helpful to, um, or it can be helpful to to suggest books to read. Um, so, for example, right now, How to Be an Anti-Racist is a very popular book that it's actually, it was sold out um, as of a couple of days ago. So, and I think they just got new orders soon or they're reordering soon. Um, but uh, suggesting conversations or readings um, given the context that one is in. So if we were not in this particular context and not this year, let's say it was 2018, and somebody wanted to begin a conversation with race, I would start with what is happening in your society, in your community, or in the country around race and begin that as a starter. Um, and trust me, every day there is something that you can pull out and find. So um, it, it isn't as if that social context won't be there. There's always a conversation to have, about, have around race that has made national news or local news. Um, so I, I think starting with something that is external to people um, can be an easier way to start. Um, again, that inner work is, um, I think in these initial conversations, it becomes very clear why the inner work is important. If anyone in this call has had conversations around race in the workplace, I'm sure you've seen the emotions come. Um, and again, how what to do to manage that is what becomes the conversation then. And it always, you know, it skews away from the conversation of on, on hand about race and racism. Uh, I think that um, if there are relationships where power dynamics are similar, it's about bravery and about being able to uh, move past fear, which um, it's actually talking to um my mother about uh, yesterday. It's a scary thing to move past fear. Um, everyone has fear, but being able to take a step forward past it is uh, the thing that often makes a difference in um, everything, just everything. Just take one small step um, to put yourself out there. It's related to vulnerability. Um, and so these are... I think these are the easiest ways for, for a black woman, for a woman of color. I don't know how to answer that. And I think it really depends on the specific relationship that one has with their management or leaders. Um, if there's a willingness to talk about it, if there is, um, if there have been experiences of retaliation against, um, you know, 
uh, unsaid expectations or something like that. Uh, these things are really hard for me. What I have done is I've had to engage with uh, work outside of my organization, whatever organization it was at the time, to uh, get some type of relief from the harm that is happening at work. Um, when when I have brought it up and it's not been uh, it's not been accepted well. So that, that's really what, for me, as a Black woman, it has looked like having to look for outside resources and spend time and energy uh, creating a network of people who understand what I'm talking about, who don't dismiss it, who don't say, well, maybe it wasn't about race. Um, you know, it, it, and that's time consuming as well. It's, mm-hmm. it's been a support, though. It's been a huge support. Yeah. And as a as a white woman, I think about my right. responsibility and my role to use my voice and to call it out. Right? I'm thinking about the whatever it is that if you see something, say something. Right? Yeah. You see it when you're in a metro station. But it is a responsibility that I have, and that I would hope my white colleagues have to say something, to call out and to name race when racism when we see it. Um, because you're right; otherwise, we are just acting complicit with what we know yes. is wrong in the workplace too. I think it's also a bit more complicated when there, um, you know, these conversations are often uh, referenced between uh, black people and white people. There are many more ethnicities and cultures that are living in this in this country. Um, but the reason why I start with anti-blackness as an issue, as something to change, is because that is that is how racism was built on this country, um, mm-hmm. on by on or towards black people. So dismantling that automatically dismantles many of the systems and cultural norms that have impacted and oppressed other people who have come to this country. So that's something else to understand in organizations that when having these conversations, why we start at a certain point is important because other people of color experience racism all the time as well. Right now, um, there was a man who was just killed in, I I, I forgot what state, um, a Latino man who was just killed by police. And I saw maybe one article about that. You know, it happens often in in reservations. Um, So to not feel as if someone is being excluded, there's also this historic context of having to express and to share why we start at a certain point. Um, I think it's important to try to make room for everyone who is in a conversation. And so education and having this um, strong understanding of why this is the root is important. And that's not a context that many people get outside of this country. No, I was, I'm sorry that I looked away there for a minute. I was pulling up a quote that I wanted to call. We were talking about Brene Brown earlier. Yes. What was kept going through my mind is vulnerability, this importance of vulnerability that we were talking about earlier is not winning or losing. It's having the courage to show up when you can't control the outcome. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to reflect on that with with you for a couple minutes, because there is that element of courage that is required. And it is not on behalf of our black colleagues. It is courage on behalf of our white colleagues to speak up and to, um, to help to dismantle the systems that we know are in place and have been in place so strongly for so many years. Yes. You know, one of the things that I have had in certain um, work contexts is someone who will almost just restate what I say. So when they, and and this has had to have this, I I have these partners in several different work contexts because this happens as a woman and as a black woman where voices are not heard. So lots of times I will say something, it will be blown over. And then this ally I have will say, wait, 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 did you hear? (laughs) Did you hear what just happened? I think this is something we need to talk about. So as a black woman, um, that's been helpful, but that's not always a, I'm very, I was very lucky to have people who understood what that felt like and to, they'd done some work, they'd done some inner work. So they, they got the reason why that needed to happen. I do want to ask, you know, we've been talking a lot about, obviously this is a a complex and difficult issue and topic in time in our country, in our world. Yes. You had mentioned earlier that there are, there are glimmers of hope, right? There, as we've talked about, what, what are those things that stick with you about this time as you think about maybe what the future could look like i have to answer this on several different levels and i'll start individually um as in, from an individual point of view um one thing that has kept hope for me is a thing that has kept hope for 
all cultures who have had to go through this process of being oppressed or marginalized in the United States culture. Um, the things, the, the music, the plays, the comedies, the uh, books that have come out of this time um, are incredibly insightful. Um, it's just like other periods of time of, of unrest. Um, often art follows culture and what's happening in a social context. So the, um, the awareness and the thing that um, is a joyful, you know, art for me and culture for me is often joyful. So listening to something that reflects the thing that I'm feeling is nice. It, it feels, um, you feel seen, one feels seen. So I think that's one thing. It's also brought a lot of uh, connectivity in ways that I hadn't seen um, in different communities within the Black community and outside of the Black community as well. I think in terms of um, of culture, uh, as a, a country's culture, it's everywhere. This is not something that um, can be denied or ignored anymore. And so that's hopeful to me. I'm hopeful that this will be taken seriously, finally, um, by those who have power. And power isn't always the politician. You know, many, many power looks like many different things in many different contexts. So um, I, I'm really hopeful about that. I, I, I can't tell you um, how it's been nice to see. And one of the reasons it's been nice to see is because I'm exhausted. Um, and so having other people to be able to carry this burden um, is, uh, it's, I mean, I just sighed. <laughs> it's just, mm-hmm. oh. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I think um, in terms of policies, we're seeing some that have come out already quickly, defunding police and um, getting police out of schools. Um, and also I think I- I'm, I'm, I'm pushing for defunding police and for getting police out of schools, but there are also bills that have been introduced that um, uh, that changed the definition of how force can be used. Although many of those have been in the books already, so they're not always adhered to, um, which is why I'm pushing for defunding police and um, investing in communities um, and getting police out of schools. So there are different levels, but the, the energy in the air is um, one that has actually helped me uh, keep some energies, keep some momentum in this. I, I have been so burned out for so many years around mm-hmm. this. Um, but now I feel uh, reignited because of the interest and the support um, and the, the having the weight off the shoulders a little bit, a little bit um, because of this time. So what yeah. about you? What are some things that you've seen that have been hopeful? I, I think there are many I things was- to pull from. <laughs> There are. And I would agree. I think the the pace of the potential policy change is is enormous. And we have worked on many issues that um, have had moments, right? Moments in time where their issues popped up to the top. But this one, hopefully, is one where we see the systems that have long been the issue yes. officially addressed. Yes. And addressed in rapid, in rapid form. And I love your comment about art because I, I, as we sit here right outside of the DC area and think back to what Mayor Muriel Bowser did was brilliant. And that will be not only part of her legacy, but that will hopefully be a celebratory spot in our nation's capital for years and years to come. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with what she did, um, she hired a local artist. Um, and I believe it was, it was kind of in the middle of the night, right? It was kind of under the, <laughs> under darkness. Um, but to paint in, in bright yellow, um, paint Black Lives Matter right on the plaza outside of the White House. And so Absolutely. how we are seeing art, art show up and art build community is, is powerful. I agree with you on that. It really is. And, um, I, I have to make this comment. Um, I would, I, I appreciate and I loved waking up to see that on the street towards the White House. Um, And I also understand that uh, she is a politician. And so I would suggest that um, people on this call look into the policies and the things that people have supported, the local politicians, because there are many groups that have been fighting this 
this this fight against race and racism against racism in um, the DC area who have not been happy with how Mayor Bowser has performed um, when it comes to policy um, in terms of uh, being a face and saying the right thing. Yes, those things are great or doing superficial or as people are saying now, performative actions um, are, again, those are good things. Um, and there are other things that um, many people have had a challenge with with her. So that's that's a, you, we have to follow our politicians. We really do. Mm-hmm. All right. We're, we are right at the end here, Carolyn. And I want to acknowledge how much I appreciate you and um, just honestly, how much you were willing to come and have this conversation with me. You have a lot going on already in your world. <laughs> and the fact that you took this hour um, to share this conversation with me and with the folks around the phone, I am very appreciative of that. I'm honored to be invited. I've really enjoyed working with Mission Partner and I see some of you on the phone, um, on the Zoom. It's been really great and it's uh, stretched me to think a bit more. And so I appreciate you all too. And thank you for everyone who is on this Zoom call um, who's taking the time to listen. So one last thing, Mm -hmm. we're going to wrap up. As May said, we're going to be posting this as a podcast. So we'll send that out to all of you who are on the line. But we talked about Juneteenth very, very quickly. And yes. tomorrow for us, we de- we determined that it will be a day in service. And from here on out, every year will be a day in service. And so that means that if an individual wants to take the day off, that is a day that is paid to take off for them. They don't use a vacation day for that. But the intention is that for us, for those of us who have work to do, that's a day for us to to dig in and do some work um, in solidarity and in support of our Black community and Black colleagues. So I'm looking forward to learning more tomorrow and spending time tomorrow in support of and celebration of Black community. And just want to thank you for starting on the eve of Juneteenth, starting me off on a good foot there. Thank you for your leadership, Carrie. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. Since that interview took place, I've continued to learn from Carolyn, and we have continued along our equity journey in our workplace, with our clients, in our communities, and at home. If you're interested in seeing how we hold ourselves accountable, you can download our Race Equity Action Plan on the Mission Partners website or email me at carrie at mission.partners and I'll send along a copy of it. So we're coming close to wrapping our first season of Mission Forward and I would really appreciate you sharing and reviewing the show with your colleagues who you believe will find our work and these interviews as powerful as we do. We so appreciate your support this season And we look forward to connecting with you next time on Mission Forward.